you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll start looking at verse 29, go through verse 32. It's been a little while since we've looked at Ephesians. I'll remind us of the context in a moment, but we're going to dive in where we left off. Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, inside cover of the bulletin, you can find the scripture there. You can also find it on, I believe it's page 978 in the Pew Bible, the black ones are Bibles, the red ones are hymnals. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good and what you do is good. And we pray that you would show us your goodness, you would teach us your decrees, your commandments, and that you would help us to see that try as we might, we can't do any of these things on our own. So we need you. We need you to show us our sin and to show us our savior to show us the one who gives us power to follow you, to trust you, to believe in you. So do that now, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe it's not as complicated or confusing as we think. Maybe biblical community, the kind that heals, endures, forgives, the kind that walks with us through the good, bad, the ugly of life, Maybe it doesn't require advanced degrees or seminars. Maybe biblical community doesn't require me to read the latest book from some successful megachurch pastor. Maybe it only requires me to read one book, an ancient book, with a divine author, with clear instructions for how to live. And and that, plus maybe one other thing, it requires me to admit where I've fallen short and to ask for God's help and forgiveness as I try again. Again, I didn't say it was easy. Didn't say it wasn't hard. I said maybe it's not complicated or confusing. There's some freedom here. There's some simplicity in what God has to say to us. Is there not? Speak edifying words. Don't grieve the spirit. Don't give in to malice. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. And don't, don't miss that last part. Some preachers have spent years mining the depths of Ephesians. We're moving at a little quicker pace. That's okay. And the best ones realize how interconnected this book is, how each command is grounded in a statement of fact, the facts of God's redemption which results in our salvation from sin, which results in new life in Christ, in our new life together as the body of Christ. Here's some brief reminders as we dive back in because it's been a while, or it might be a quick introduction if this is your first Sunday, but what does Paul 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell God's people in the book of Ephesians. Chapter one, he says, you're chosen in Christ before worlds began. Chapter two, he says, you were dead in sin, but you were made alive in Christ if you've trusted in him. Chapter three, he says, the gospel mystery has now been revealed. Jew and Gentile, formerly at odds with one another, are one in Christ. And Paul is praying as well in that chapter that we might understand the height, breadth, depth of all of these things in Christ. Chapter four, where we are begins by saying we are unified in Christ through Christ-like purity. And then starting in verse 20, he talks about this putting off and putting on thing, the way we clothe ourselves as Christians. He says we need to put off the old self, put on the new self, put off lies, put on truth, put off sinful anger, put on righteous anger. That's a very tricky fitting garment, a hard one to navigate well. Put off stealing and theft. Put on generosity, he says. And then in this verse that we see before us, we'll talk about, once again, putting off improper speech, putting on proper speech. That's where we begin today in one second. First off, this has been a bit of a different series for me. You might remember we, we went really fast at the beginning. We slowed down in Ephesians 4. You might wonder where are we headed after this? Well, today we're finishing Ephesians 4. Lord willing, the next four sermons from me will be finishing Ephesians 5 and 6. We'll still have some sermons from Colossians, the life of David from our assistant pastor sprinkled in. And eventually, this year, we're going to study the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes, and yet God's tenacious grace saved his people anyway. That's a little bit of preview, a little bit of review, but without further ado, let's, what is Paul telling us again here at the end of Ephesians 4? He's telling us how can you build better unity in your biblical community? How can you do it? Forget about the ways your neighbor isn't doing it. How can you build better unity in your biblical community? Five ways to do that. Those are our five points today. The first one, speak to build up, not to tear down. Speak to build up, not to tear down. Verse 29, let's read it. <clears throat> it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear as fits the occasion. Literally, it's according to the need in Greek. Similar to the previous verse, <clears throat> which we read months ago, it seems like at this point. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share <clears throat> with, anyone, <clears throat> with anyone in need. It's one of those weeks for my voice, like many of you, I've got stuff from a previous cold, but pray for me in that. But nonetheless, these verses, in both of them, there's a focus on the needy the needs of the body of Christ. Verse 28 says basically, don't steal, give to the needy. Verse 29, don't tear down, give grace to your hearers that need building up. Now we'll return to this idea in a minute, but don't skip the first part of Paul's instruction here. It's, it's a negative, yes, because there are old ways of life that have to be put off. Christians must dress in new clothes New habits, put away the old ones, never put them on again. 
You might say we have to throw away our old clothes and never put them on again. Newly married men know what I'm saying, whether they want to admit it or not. You know how your wife goes through your closet, throws away, he's not wearing this one anymore. Maybe they get started on that before the wedding day. Don't everyone look around, but some of you are whispering. Some engaged couples in particular, but men, you will thank your wife for this one day. You'll also complain about it, by the way. You'll complain a little bit because the old sin nature dies a hard death. The sin nature, the old man who screams about this and five other things, 5,000 other things. No one can tell me how to live. Your creator can tell you how to live, and he has. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting or rotten. Sarpos in Greek, it's similar to sarcasm or sarcasmos. Is your speech rotten? How do you know? Well, Paul already addressed falsehood back in verse 25. Put that away, he says. Speak truth. Verse 15, further back, he says, speak truth in love. So we know we're called to speak nothing untruthful, speak only truth, speak only in love. What what about sarcasm and other things like that? What about jokes? They always rotten. They always corrupting. Are are all jokes, all sarcasm, is that all forbidden? Not all jokes. But what is the goal of our humor, we might need to ask ourselves. We might need to ask ourselves other questions to figure out when sarcasm and those kinds of speech are appropriate. Are you just trying to make someone laugh, trying to belittle them? Are you belittling their ideas so much that you belittle them? Are they somebody who, say, appreciates sarcasm consistently? And even if they are, are you encouraging them in a sort of risky, dangerous habit? You know, the guy who says sarcasm is my love language, it's a little bit funny until the point where it's not, right? Are you settling on sarcasm because it's easier than encouragement? Do you know how to genuinely, unironically, unsarcastically compliment or encourage someone? Do you practice that? Do you ask what the occasion needs? Because isn't that where Paul is directing our focus? Verse 29 starts with no corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up is fits the occasion, or again, according to the need, that it may give grace to those who hear. One of our elders consistently knows the right word to say in hard situations, meetings, private conversations. I don't think it's a coincidence that he once recommended a book to me. It's a secular book, but a helpful one called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. See, I get the feeling. I've never asked him to be sure that he's specifically cultivated that skill. I ask you, would we be a better church if more of us sought the right word that best fits the occasion? Some of you are saying, hello, Matt, hold on, that sarcasm thing, you you started talking about that. that. Is that always bad? Am I never allowed to do that? You didn't answer definitively. Scripture cautions us against any speech that corrupts instead of builds up, And that may not be as clear of an answer as you want, but it's not unclear. (laughs) See, our focus is not simply, are my words 
okay, are they acceptable, allowable, permissible? It's something greater, isn't it? The focus must be, are my words being used to impart grace to those who hear? There are times where cracking a joke is exactly what someone needs to break the tension. I'm not saying it's what they always need, but sometimes. But how much better would our community be if this was consistently our focus, imparting grace to those who hear? Isn't that what you want others to do for you? One author says, it is better to have grace spoken to us sometimes than just to read for ourselves. It is grace that comes alive when it is spoken by a friend. How can you build better unity in your biblical community? Speak truth. Speak encouragement and edification. Make grace come alive for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How else can we build better unity? Well, secondly, we can eagerly maintain unity of spirit and not grieve the spirit. Maintain unity of spirit, not grieve the spirit. You see, it says this in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Is this easy? Well, at least it's clear. You know, sometimes we say, life is hard. Relationships are easily twisted and naughty. You, you wonder, what do I do? Especially when it seems like almost everything I do might upset someone. Well, come back to basic criteria number two. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And before we dig into this, let me say, grief stinks. And Christians grieve. We grieve with hope, 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us, because grief is not the end of the story. It's also not a chapter we skip over, stiff upper lip, just get over it and all that. No. Now, I, I have said before, some of you know this, sometimes I wish I was a bit more stoic, a bit less emotional. But you know, that's not how God made me. And who knows, if I was more stoic, maybe my sermons would be boring. In the meantime, try to understand my own emotions. I try to rightly order them. I try to make sure the emotions don't wag the pastor, if that makes sense. But Nonetheless, grief is hard. Grief stinks at times. It says here, even the Holy Spirit can be grieved. What does that mean? doesn't mean that God is unstable, that he's reactionary. Theologians have long said that God is impassable, or Westminster Confession, chapter 2, section 1. God is without parts or passions. It's a complex topic. Perhaps the best simple explanation is that God is unchangeable. As Hebrews 13.8 says, he's the same yesterday, today, forever, that he is, as one person has said, he is from within himself determined. In other words, he's not controlled by outside forces. Now, God hates sin. God loves sinners. So, of course, God has emotions in one sense, but he's not an out-of-control emotional basket case either, right? He, above all, has rightly ordered emotions. So if the Holy Spirit can be grieved, he is only ever grieved about the right things. Like Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then go and deny him by their lifestyles. Like Christians who speak falsehood like it's a bad habit they were never able to break. Christians who think that all anger is righteous and that people who think otherwise should just leave me alone. Christians who think, well, it's just that person's fault that he was offended by my brilliant multi-layered joke and sarcasm that I brilliantly crafted there. It's his fault. 
What grieves the Holy Spirit? How about any unholiness in our lives? The Holy Spirit did not seal us, as it says in Ephesians 1.13, so that we would be unholy. No, he, he sealed us that we might know the guarantee that is waiting for us in heaven. What verse 30 calls the day of redemption. That we might have a down payment, a small taste of it right now. That we might understand it more and more as we grow in Christ. That we might realize that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. That's why he sealed us. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me, the last time the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it's mentioned here at the end of Ephesians 4, the last time he's mentioned in Ephesians before this is at the beginning of the chapter. Ephesians 4, let me read verses 1 through 3. It builds up to it. I therefore, Paul writes, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Taken together, you get the feeling that we can easily grieve the Holy Spirit unless we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I said this back in October when we looked at the beginning of Ephesians. John Calvin says, meekness, gentleness, that's mentioned in verse 2, it helps us to preserve the unity which would otherwise be broken a hundred times in a day. I'm not sure he's exaggerating that much, right? See, if the test of our speech is, does this give grace to the hearer? Does it make grace come alive for the hearer? Then what's the test for verse 30? Isn't it something like this? Will the actions I'm contemplating, will they promote unity in the body of Christ or will they destroy it? Putting it another way, the way it puts it here, will my actions grieve the Holy Spirit or will they please him? John Calvin also says the Holy Spirit rejoices and is glad on our account when we are obedient in all things. Maybe we don't focus on this enough, that the Holy Spirit is pleased and glad when we obey. Sometimes we rightly focus on our sin. We're called to die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness, but sometimes we're so focused on our own sin, we hate our sin and we end up hating ourselves. You've heard that phrase from me a few times. I stole it from someone else. Christian maturity is hating our sin without hating ourselves, remembering that God is pleased with us when we do imperfectly with the Spirit's help what he asks us to do. Holy Spirit is pleased and glad when we obey. You know, I, I see plenty of good stories. It's part of my, my job, my position. I see sad ones too. I can't tell you all the details can't tell you the details about every email I read where someone is apologizing to someone else. They, they happen, even this week. Can't tell you every time that a husband and wife are patient and forgiving to one another, but it happens, praise the Lord. It is happening, it has been happening, it will continue to happen. You know plenty of other things like that. I don't know all of those details that happen in the lives of everyone in our church, but I know that God is pleased 
by such things that happen. When we do what he's commanded us to do, he's pleased by that. He's not grieved. He's pleased. When in doubt, my friends, speak grace. Make it come alive for your brothers and sisters. And don't grieve the Spirit. Please him instead. What else do we do? When we're not sure what to do, but we know that we want to build better unity in our biblical community, what else do we do? Well, thirdly, get rid of malice and its friends. Get rid of malice and its friends. Verse 31. Why do I say it that way? Well, read verse 31 with me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Malice, the final word. If you look at Oxford online, it says malice is, quote, the intention or desire to do evil, ill will, evil. It's another way to actually translate the Greek word here, evil. See, isn't, verse 31, isn't it a list of other evil things? Friends of evil, if I can say it that way. Friends like bitterness, wrath, anger, obviously in this case, unrighteous anger. And remember, as we said, even righteous anger can degenerate into unrighteous anger if you let it simmer for long enough. But aren't these things evil? Aren't these the things that we want to avoid, put away, if we want to build better unity in our biblical community? Along with clamor, great word, horrible behavior, great word, so what is clamor? It's, it's an outcry. It's crying out, that kind of thing. I, I think you might call it drama. Are you the one causing the most drama at holiday feasts with your family? Who do you know who's always creating drama or what one theologian calls the loud self-assertion of the angry man or woman who will make everyone hear his grievance? Whoever you just pictured as you heard that. Let's pray for that person today, especially if it's yourself. Let's hope it's not. The last friend of malice or evil, it's slander. Interestingly, the Greek word is literally blasphemies. Same word used of Jesus in Matthew 26, 65. He's on trial. He said he was the son of God. Those who didn't believe him, they said, ah, it's blasphemy. What's the connection here? Well, if we slander one of God's fellow image bearers, is that not blasphemy in a sense against God's character who created them as well? And are not all these things, malice in all of her evil friends, ways that we might grieve the Holy Spirit? Are they not all ways that we might tear down the biblical community that we say we want? Because you see, sometimes we'd really like it if everyone else would work harder than us at building biblical community, wouldn't we? It's hard. So I'd really rather other people do that. I'd, it'd be really nice if all of you could just be really patient and put up with all of my quirks, my immaturity, my lack of sanctification. That'd be nice. Isn't that just another twist on that idea? Grace for my sins, but justice for yours. And keep in mind, I'm not saying that you are the biggest part of the problem. You may not be. You may be the linchpin that's holding your family, your community together. You may be selflessly pouring yourself out, trying to overlook offenses where you can, trying to assume the best until you have to assume the worst, asking yourself, were they meaning to offend me just now or was that just foolishness, accidental, something that wasn't malicious? 
I'm not saying you're the biggest part of the problem. I am saying you are the only part of the problem that you can control. And even then, our control, our self-control is limited, is it not? We need to strive for self-control. We're called to do it. But we need to strive with all his energy that he so powerfully works within us, as Colossians 1 says. We need to serve in the strength that God supplies, 1 Peter 4. And we need to be ready for other people to not strive as hard as we do. That one's tough, isn't it? That leads to our fourth point. How do we build better unity in our biblical community? Fourthly, we freely give the grace of forgiveness. We freely give the grace of forgiveness. Verse 32, at least the beginning of it. Paul's told us what to put off, has he not? Corrupting talk. Actions that grieve the Holy Spirit. In verse 31 are examples of those actions that might grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we put on? Beginning of verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. We'll stop there. These three words, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving. Kindness, kindness, niceness. I think it's important to say something that that, that is not the sum total of godliness or even of godly masculinity. Sometimes I think we've done Christian men a disservice by forgetting to tell them that godly manhood requires them to do hard things. Sometimes it requires them to even say hard words, yet always truthful words and always words that are spoken in love. In other words, godly masculinity requires more than just kindness. And at the same time, it does not require less than kindness. And on top of kindness, we also need to be, what does it say here, tender-hearted. Good-heartedness, literally in Greek, forbids the idea of kindness through gritted teeth. Anybody know what I mean? Kindness through gritted teeth. I'm doing something nice because it's what I'm supposed to do. But don't think this means that I like you. (laughs) Can't do that. (laughs) God actually wants you to develop kind, internal feelings for the people you are serving, people you're in community with. He wants you to be the bigger man, bigger woman, who can overlook small slights and grievances. Speaking of which, we also need to be, it says, forgiving. Forgiving one another. These words could be translated something like freely giving, giving grace, similar to what you read in verse 29, giving grace to those who hear. But have you ever met someone, he's kind, he's tender, he or she, right until you've wronged them? Are you that person? Hope not. But if so, we still have some room to grow in grace. Still have some hard things to learn. Forgiving others is hard, is it not? Especially when you struggle with the question of whether it's also not just time to forgive, but time to trust them again. See, trust and forgiveness are two different things. I am not commanding you to always trust someone who has proved to be unreliable, but I would ask you to pray this prayer, God, I can't trust him or her yet, but if you're ready for me to trust them, then show me, then make me ready right now. You see, a loving, forgiving, tender heart wants to trust at least a little, even if it seems like the stupidest thing in the world, humanly speaking. 
Words of 1 Corinthians 13, a trusting heart, a a loving, forgiving, tender heart. I mean, it, it believes all things. It hopes all things. It wants to believe the best about someone. Believe the best until you have to believe the worst. And again, that's hard, isn't it? How do we respond to this and the other things, the other hard things that God says to us in his word? You know, some of us might just dismiss them. That's unrealistic. I'm just going to tune that one out. The the really strong Christians can worry about that one, not me. But see, isn't that how you'd like others to treat you? How is that going to happen? If you listen, I'll tell you. And if even a small part of you wants to do this, keep listening. If you're convicted by how far you fall short of this, then thank you for taking me seriously. Let's talk about this. This is hard. Forgiving someone else who's wronged you. Of course it is. And when striving for unity, whether it's forgiveness or anything else, when that gets hard, remember our final point. Remember the final words that Paul says in Ephesians 4. Point number five, remember who forgave you. Remember who forgave you. Let's read all of verse 32. Now be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Is forgiving others hard? I I have a feeling it is. If you say it's easy, then I don't know. I think I want to have a longer conversation with you. But is it too hard? Is it unreasonable? Is it too much to ask? Is it harder for you to forgive than it was for Christ? One author talks about forgiveness being a willingness to absorb the hurt. (laughs) The price, not retaliating with more hurt to the offending party. You understand that, don't you? Sometimes forgiveness is basically saying, it's okay, you don't have to feel bad anymore, I'm okay. I can take it. We can move past it. You see, when the offense is small, that's one thing, right? When the offense is great, stealing someone's life savings, for example, then forgiveness is very costly. It's almost impossible. And in the example I gave, maybe even unwise, restitution is a a proper thing in some human relationships when sin has been committed. But that's not our exact focus today. Our focus is on building unity by forgiving one another, acknowledging how hard, how costly that is. And what if the offense is huge? Not just the theft of someone's life savings, but the theft of the infinite honor and glory that Christ our Creator deserves. R.C. Sproul famously said that all sin is cosmic treason against the Creator of the universe. How can that sin be righted? How can that hurt be absorbed? How else but by the God-man, fully God, fully man, someone of infinite worth and value, suffering in the place of his people. By him taking the hurt that we deserved in our place. By him experiencing the whole wrath of God poured out upon him upon the cross. Forgiveness is hard, friends. I don't want to say it's not. I'm not trying to unnecessarily minimize how hard it is. The only thing that can minimize it is to see the much greater cost, the much greater hurt 
that Christ bore in our place. And if he has borne that hurt, if he has loved us with an everlasting love despite our sin and our rebellion, then we can begin to do the same. As Christians, little Christs, what that word means, made and renewed in the image of Christ, spreading his love and his good news to others. Elsewhere, the scripture says, with man, this is impossible. Doesn't that seem to apply to what we're talking about today? Forgiveness seems impossible, humanly speaking. But with God, all things are possible. Like better unity in biblical community, it's possible. Through Christ our Savior, Christ our substitute, Christ our creator, our recreator, our redeemer, our ultimate forgiver who bore the hurt himself, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous like you and me, that he might bring us to God, that he might make a forgiving community possible. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us do the impossible. Help us to forgive one another. Father, we can't do that on our own. We can't kill all the bitterness in our heart on our own. And Father, we know that that's what our world needs. We, we know that our world is a fallen place, a hurting place, sometimes an angry place, a place that longs for forgiveness and acceptance. And so, Father, would you give us the strength, the power to forgive one another, to show one another and the world around us what a loving biblical community looks like. We can't do it on our own. So give us the strength to do it through Christ, our great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.